You know, it's one thing to be a neighbor. It's another thing to be a neighbor who follows Jesus Christ. And I want to peel that back just a little bit this morning and take a, little, a, a deeper look at the motivation at being a Christ follower and being a neighbor. A neighbor here in Manchester, in the city of St. Louis, here in our country, and a global neighbor. As I was thinking about this and preparing for the time this morning, I was reminded of what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. Now, I've abbreviated this. It'll be up on the screen. Paul writes, for Christ's love compels us, he, referring to Jesus, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's pretty clear about what his motivation is. It's the love of Christ. And he uses a very strong word there when he uses the word compels. That's the idea that it's driving him, it's forcing him to change everything about how he used to live. He now lives for Christ and not for himself. I'm reminded, too, of what Jesus said to his disciples in those last hours in the upper room in John 15. He he said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of motivation that I believe that we, as those people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, need to bring to our neighborhood, to our city, and to the globe. And lest we think that this kind of love that compels is reserved just for deity or for the apostles, the special ones, I ran across a story that I want to read to you about one of our presidents and an act of love that he had for one of the soldiers. So if you'll forgive me for reading this just a bit, but I'm afraid I can't do it justice unless I read it. It begins in the summer of 1862. A young man belonging to a Vermont regiment was found sleeping at his post. He was tried and sentenced to be shot. Pretty stiff, huh? The day was fixed for the execution, and the young soldier calmly prepared to meet his fate. Friends who knew of the case brought the matter to Mr. Lincoln's attention. It seemed that the boy had been on duty one night, and on the following night he had taken the place of a comrade too ill to stand guard. The third night he had been again called out and, being utterly exhausted, had fallen asleep at his post. As soon as Mr. Lincoln understood the case, he signed a pardon and sent it to the camp. The morning before the execution arrived, the president had not heard whether the pardon had reached the officers in charge of the matter. He began to feel very uneasy. He ordered a telegram to be sent to the camp, but received no answer. State papers could not fix his mind, nor could he banish the condemned soldier boy from his thoughts. At last, feeling that he must know that the lad was safe, he ordered the carriage and rode rapidly ten miles over a dusty road and beneath a scorching sun. When he reached the camp, he found that the pardon had been received and the execution stayed. The sentinel was released, and his heart was filled with lasting gratitude. 
When the campaign opened in the spring, the young man was with his regiment near Yorktown, Virginia. They were ordered to attack a fort, and he fell at the first volley of the enemy. His comrades caught him up, carried him bleeding and dying from the field. Bear witness, he said, that I have proved myself not a coward and I'm not afraid to die. Then, making a last effort, with his dying breath, he prayed for Abraham Lincoln. A couple of things caught my attention as I read that. One, that in the midst of the chaos of a civil war, this one soldier's situation comes to the attention of the president and he reacts. But because he doesn't get word of this, that he's so concerned that in the midst of all his presidential responsibilities in the Civil War, he takes a day out of his life to go and make sure that this young soldier is not executed. His concern compelled him to action. At the same time, I'm also touched by the soldier's final words, his final breath. He's praying for Abraham Lincoln. That's probably especially poignant for me. As Don and I returned from the mission field almost nine and a half years ago, one of the primary reasons we returned was the health of our parents. My father's health was failing, and Donna's mother was nearing death. And I still can remember on both occasions, as Donna's mom passed away, we were there at her side those last hours. My father, we were there with him the last days and last hours. And those, those moments are forever etched in my memory. And the words that you save to share at a loved one's death or a friend's death, those are special emotional words. They carry particular weight in your heart. You don't just talk about the weather. You're talking about heart issues, how much you love them, how much you've appreciated them. You reflect on the memories. Today, we're going to look at some of Jesus' last words. But here's the main point of what I've got to say today. So if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Love, true love, compels action and sacrifice. How would we know that Jesus loves us other than the fact he obediently gave up his life in sacrifice? He didn't just write it in a, in a book. He gave up all he had to give. How will Jesus know that we love him other than our obedient sacrificial actions? So, I believe that as we go through this passage, we're going to see this exemplified, and as neighbors, this should be our motivation. So, we're going to examine some of Jesus' final words. We're going to cover quite a bit of Scripture here, so I'm going to skim quite a bit of it. And we're going to begin in the upper room in John chapter 17. And again, I'm not going to read the whole passage. Uh, We'll zero in on, on part of it. But 
there are several important themes in this prayer. Now, picture this. The, the disciples are all sitting around. They're in probably a smaller room around a table, and uh, they've just shared a final meal together, and Jesus begins to pray to the Father. Final words, important words that Jesus is going to share in this prayer. These carry special weight. And there's, there's a number of themes here. Maybe the three that jump out the most are, first of all, the unity of Jesus and the Father. He prays that a number of times that He and the Father are one. Another theme that comes out in this prayer is the unity of the disciples and those who will hear their message in the future, all of us, our unity with He and the Father. And then finally, Jesus prays His thankfulness to have brought glory to God in His obedience. And that, re- that reminds me, we've all heard this uh, at Easter, as Jesus is hanging on the cross in John 19, verse 30, do you remember what His final words are? It is finished. And with that, He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. Do you sense in all of this the extreme compulsion that Christ has in this mission that He's been given to do? And when the mission is finished, He's finished. He's done. Okay, with that, let's look at John 17. We'll read verses 18 through 23. And I want you to notice the word sent in, this, in these six verses. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus used the word sent four times in six verses, and if you study the whole chapter, He uses the word sent six times in that chapter. Now, again, with the idea that final words are weighty words, important words, I would have to say with this repetition that this is an important concept that Jesus is trying to communicate. Jesus was sent on a mission. We learn in earlier in John, for God so loved the world that He gave us, He gave His Son. Love compelled to action. God became a man and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life in order to go to the cross and to die a bloody death. His sinless blood was shed for all of mankind. Now, why was that important? Why was that necessary? 
I think most of us believe and are convinced that God is a loving God. He says that over and over, and that's absolutely true. But one of the things that oftentimes we forget, that God is also a just God. He is holy and righteous. And so, in a sense, there's this tension in the character of God. On one hand, He loves us, but on the other hand, the other hand, He demands justice. And I think that's one of the things that, in a sense, outrages us when we see murderers get off and they're not convicted. There's a sense of justice that all of us, that somehow God's planted in us. He made us in His image. So, our dilemma was, is that because we've all sinned, there's no way that we could be in the presence of God who is perfect and holy and sinless. We can't possibly be in a relationship with Him for all of eternity. There had to be a solution. And religion grew up as people have tried to make themselves more right. It doesn't work. One sin is enough to make us blemished. The solution was for God to become a man and to live a sinless life, and only God could do that. And then to shed His blood, justice was met with His crucifixion. And so, in a sense, in a very real sense, God is holding out to each person on planet earth, He's holding out a pardon, a blood-stained pardon. And He's saying, will you take the pardon? Justice has been met. When we take that pardon, and it's a decision every person has to make, when we take that pardon, we're free. Our sins are forgiven. And at that moment… The Bible also promises that His Spirit will come to live within us and dwell with us, that we can have true intimacy with God, and He gives us power to live out this new life that He's called us to live. That's called being born again. And I would urge any of you, if you're playing the religious game, trying to convince God how good you're going to be and hope that He'll look the other way, when it comes time to face Him at judgment, it's not going to work. Let me urge you today to receive the blood-stained pardon that's been given for you, but you have to decide you want it. And in doing that, you're admitting that you're a sinner and that you're going to turn away from sin and that you're going to make Jesus your new master, not yourself. That was Jesus' job. That's what He was sent here to do and He fulfilled it. Our job is to accept the bloodstained pardon, to be born again, and to go out and tell that amazing news to all the world. If we continue on through the book of John, we see that in John 18 and 19, Jesus is condemned, He's crucified. In John 20, the wonderful news of His resurrection becomes known. In John 20 and 21, He begins to appear in different situations. Let's flip over to John 20, verses 17 through 18, at His first appearance as He resurrects from the dead. In John 20, verse 17, now remember the the background of this scene. Peter and John have gone to the tomb and it's empty. 
they come back. Then Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, and that's where we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Jesus said, I can imagine, she sees him, and she grabs him, wanting to hug him. And Jesus says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I can't imagine how excited she must have been as she ran back to the disciples. She was just probably all over herself to tell them what she saw. So where is Mary sent? The first thing that Jesus says after, don't, don't hold on to me, go tell. Go to the disciples, go to my brothers, and tell them what's happened. This is, this is a preview, folks, of what Jesus is saying to all of us. Let's keep reading. John 20, 19 through 22. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said this, after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. After Jesus convinces them that they're not looking at a ghost, what does he say? As I've been sent on a mission, my mission has been completed. Now I'm sending you on the next phase of this effort. I want you to go and tell everybody all over the world this amazing story that God has made a way. And there is life after death. There's a pardon available. And then he breathes on them, and that's a precursor to what's about to happen in a few weeks at Pentecost. It's a taste of the Holy Spirit and what this new life and this new power is going to be like. Let's keep reading the story as, as these appearances continue and as Pentecost comes upon the followers of Christ. Let's turn over to Acts 1. And I don't have time to read it all. Let's Let's look at verse 4, because Jesus gives another directive in one of his appearances. He says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Okay? I've given you the directive to go to the world and tell them this news, but before you go, just hang on a few weeks. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he repeats himself again in verse 8. Let's drop down to verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
So again, the Holy Spirit gives us power to fulfill the directive that God's given us. This amazing news that we need to tell the, the whole earth. But I want to call special attention to the last part of that sentence in verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as you read that, you get the sense that it's a progressive thing. You need to start at home here in Manchester, spread out St. Louis, the United States, and the whole globe. And historically, that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. It started in Jerusalem, and then it moved out. But that's not what the command says. The construction in the original language here, witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, is not progressive. It's all at once. It's to be done all at the same time. I want that to sink in just a little bit because this is a word not only to the church, to this church, and to the whole body of Christ globally, it's a word to you as an individual and to me. That means that I need to be involved being a neighbor right here in Manchester, in Fenton where I live. I need to be a neighbor, I need to be a messenger, a witness here in St. Louis. I need to be a neighbor on planet Earth. I need to be involved globally. That's what Jesus is telling. That's His word to us. And so if we follow the story, you're aware of probably of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost takes place. The church is born. The Holy Spirit falls on those who are following Jesus. And we see immediately why Jesus has told them to wait because Peter who denied Christ just a few weeks earlier, now stands up and boldly preaches. That's in Acts 2, 14 through 36. And in verse 37, it says that the crowd was cut to the heart, and 3,000 people were added that day. Then it goes on in verse 41 and says that this message, this story was being told all over Jerusalem, and people were being added to to their number daily. That's the story and the picture of how this is supposed to take place. So what kind of neighbors are we supposed to be as Christ followers? We're to be sure that we've received the pardon from Christ and that we've been born again. And then we need to step out graciously and boldly here in our neighborhoods, here in the city of St. Louis. Our city needs us. They need the message of Jesus. And our globe, we need to be involved, actively involved. So, that's really, as you're aware of our vision as a church, to make, mature, and multiply, that's who we are. We're committed to that. I want to just circle back around and make the point again that love, true love, compels us to action and sacrifice. The love for Jesus can only be measured in our obedient sacrifice for Him. In John, 1 John 4.10, John wrote, 
this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, here's, here's what I want you to take home. I want you to mull this over. If you're driving home and you've got family in the car, discuss this a little bit. What is the love of God compelling you to do right now this week? What is the love of God compelling you to do right now this week? On the back of your weekly that you should have received walking in, you flip it onto the back, there's a challenge that I'd invite you to join me with this week. First of all, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord and Master, I urge you, don't leave today without doing that. God knows your heart. He's not so concerned with the words that you say, but if your heart is to turn to Him for forgiveness and to follow Him and make Him your Master, I would encourage you to pray that silently as we close here in a few minutes. But on the challenge, as Dan prompted us, I would challenge you to pray for one person every day this week who needs Jesus, who hasn't received his forgiveness. Make that a priority. Second of all, would you pray for our church? God has sovereignly placed us in Manchester, in St. Louis, and as neighbors in the, in the global picture of things. What do we need to do? And we're coming up to a very important weekend this next weekend as we vote on a new senior pastor. Would you please pray that God would give us unity as a church, clarity on what we should do, and pray that for Adam and Jenny Bowers as well. Would you pray that every day this week and join us all praying before the Lord? And finally, we all have a global responsibility, and maybe you're not like Dan and Stephanie who sense God calling them to a particular place in the Middle East, but we all have a responsibility. Let me encourage you as you, as you leave, as you, if you'll turn in the foyer and go towards the east entrance on the wall, we've got a, a, a TV screen. It's kind of our missionary wall. We've got bookmarks that have been printed with all of our different missionaries. Pick one of those up, and would you pray for that missionary every day this week? And Kathy Nelson in our outreach department printed prayer requests. She gets prayer requests from all of our missionaries nationally and internationally every month, and she prints those. She's got some of those sitting right there on the floor next to the bookmarks. Grab one of those. So pray for an unsaved friend. Pray for our church and our city and then pray for a missionary every day this week. I would challenge you to do that. Okay, I'm going to take one minute and give you a quick update on the Burks, because I know many of you have been praying for us, and some of you might not know this. I turned my resignation in here at the church in August. I was going to join a dear friend of mine who at the time was president and CEO of a mission agency, and he had challenged me to join him as we had worked together before, in an initiative to reach 55 unengaged and unreached people groups here on planet Earth. There are approximately 1,370, give or take a little bit on who you read, what researchers you read. That many 
groups of people on planet earth that have no believers, have no church, and no missionary. They have no chance to hear this gospel message. After praying about this for a number of months, I felt compelled to leave the church and to join my friend Dr. Michael Cooper and do that. Well, as many of you may know, uh, because the organization he was working with, he was taking them in a new direction, the board of directors asked him to resign. And he said, well, if that's not where you're going, I want to resign. And so they offered me the job that they had offered me earlier, and I said, well, if I'm not working with my friend and I'm not doing unengaged, unreached people groups, that's not what I'm being called to do. Over the past couple of months, I want to take special thanks to our elders who, realizing how unsettled all of this was, extended my employment till the end of December. And they have been very, very gracious and kind to Don and I. In the meantime, uh, Michael Cooper and I have submitted that same initiative proposal to the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is the association of churches that we're a part of, and to their global outreach arm, Reach Global, and uh, they have accepted that initiative. So, there's still some pieces to be worked out on this over the next couple of weeks, but um, it's pretty clear that uh, over the next month or so, I'll be joining the staff of Reach Global, and we'll be focusing and helping our churches globally as well as here in the U.S. to focus on reaching unengaged and unreached people group, and I'm very excited about that. So thank you for your prayers. We're running a little long. Let me close our time in prayer and invite our worship team to come on up. And uh, we've got a lot on our plates. We've got a lot on our plates. Father, thank you for your presence this morning. You promised where two or three are gathered together in your name that you're here with us. And by faith, we accept that. We know it to be true because you never lie. Father, again, we bring our city before you and we ask that you would use your body here to bring peace and good news, that you would heal the scars in our city. And Father, we pray for our church. Father, give us wisdom. Give us clarity. Give Adam and Jenny clarity and bring unity to our church over this important decision that we'll be making this next week. And we pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.